And welcome to today's edition of Worcester Talking News, brought to you by Worcester News and Equipment for the Blind, with permission of the Worcester News, and recorded on Thursday the 21st of October 2021, here at Colin Chance House. I'm Evelyn Brock, editor for this edition, and with me to read the articles are Moira Lowe and Jules Watkins. Our sound engineer is John Plush, and we are, as usual, ably supported by members of the admin team, led by Carol Hartle. A warm welcome to all our listeners, especially new ones. I hope everyone enjoys our offering. In addition to news items, you will hear some useful telephone numbers, including theatres, readers' letters, birthdays, and thought for the week. Please remember that although obituaries are still included, that following listeners' requests, they are now placed in a different spot following the closing music. So if you wish to hear them, please stay tuned then. Don't forget that recordings are usually available as podcasts. But at present, talking books are not available on memory sticks, but rather on CDs and tape. Also, do let us know your birthdays so that we can greet you specially when that time comes. This service is free to users, but if you would like to make a voluntary donation, it can be sent to Colin Chance House, Wilds Lane, Worcester WR51DA. We do like hearing from you, and a message can be left on our answer phone, Worcester, that's 01905 767 766, or you could add a note to your wallet. If there's a problem with any aspect of your receiving recordings, please use the answer phone on the number I've just given and leave a message to that effect. So first of all, birthdays for this coming week. 24th of October, Anne McKeever. 29th of October, Betty Griffiths. And the 31st of October, Eileen Wheelwright. And a happy birthday to all three ladies on their special day. Now, thought for the week. And this is from Romans 12, 9, and it reads, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keeping your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now some useful telephone numbers. You've already had the one for Colin Chance House. The police non-emergency number is 101. Crime Stoppers, 
zero eight double zero five 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 one one one. The Worcester Hub, Worcester seven six five seven six five. Worcester Live, Worcester six double one four two seven. Malvern Theatres. Zero one six eight four eight nine double two double seven. Out of hours medical services, one one one. And Samaritans, one one six one two three, and that's a free phone number. So now to the headlines and the headline articles, and I'll ask Moira to start us off. Okay, my first headline is Friday, October the fifteenth, and it's cash for FaceTime. GP surgeries in the city could be named and shamed if they do not agree to see more patients face to face under new plans for the government. Ministers have said an emergency winter support package worth £250 million would allow surgeries to take on more temporary staff in a bid to improve access and increase the number of face-to-face appointments, cut red tape and call upon other parts of the NHS to help with some care. The plans have come under fire for stating that surgeries which fail to provide a yet-to-be-defined appropriate level of face-to-face appointments would be excluded from the new funding, as well as named and shamed in new league tables. The latest NHS figures show that as of June, there is one GP per 1,821 people in Worcestershire and Herefordshire. This means the number of patients seen by one GP is up by 8% from 1,684 people per GP five years ago. The number of GPs employed across the two counties has fallen by 5% during the same period. Worcester doctor Jason Jason Seawood Airy said a massive shortage of GPs in Worcester was the main reason why surgeries had not returned fully to -to face-to-face appointments and this was leaving patients at their wit's end. GP surgeries have struggled to restore full face-to-face appointments since the end of the pandemic, which has left a significant number of patients struggling at their wit's end to access healthcare, he said. The main reason for this is staffing issues. There's a massive shortage of full-time equivalent GPs in Worcester to meet patient demand. This has resulted in a large number of complaints and concerns being raised. Patients who are struggling to access face-to-face GP appointments are turning up at A&E with routine health issues that are not classified as accidents or emergencies. Whilst this is understandable, such inappropriate use of scarce, precious and limited A&E resources is placing the NHS under enormous pressure and can rapidly saturate healthcare services. Under the new measures announced by the NHS yesterday, the multi-million pound funding would also see GP telephone systems upgraded in a bid to reduce long waits over the phone. Social distancing in practice could also be changed or reduced and patients would be able to see nurses, pharmacists and paramedics at GP practices. 
NHS bosses said the new measures will allow patients to compare surgeries through appointment data and GPs have been told they must respect preferences for face-to-face care unless there are good clinical reasons to the contrary. Dr Seawood Airy said league tables for GP practices was a reasonable idea. GP surgeries will be named in league tables if they are judged to have failed to provide an appropriate level of access, he said. This seems reasonable. A doctor's primary aim is to make the care of their patient their first and foremost priority, and increasing the level of scrutiny and regulation to safeguard the sacrosanct doctor-patient relationship in this regard is very important. Health Secretary and Worcestershire MP Mr Javid said the funding would support doctors to offer more appointments and give patients greater choice. The government denied it would be using league tables to compare the level of access at practices, but publishing more granular information about GP surgeries will increase transparency and accountability. When asked whether GPs would be given targets on the number of face-to-face appointments they provided, Mr Javid said his only target was choice. Well, we have a story from Saturday and Sunday, October 16th and 17th, and it reads 368k farewell that's £368,000 and it starts with saying uh, Big Bid's Trumpet Farewell a staggering £368,000 was raised during the Big Parade Elephant Auction in aid of St Richard's Hospice smashing the total raised during the auction one couple came away from Thursday's auction with five Big Parade Elephants as a thank you to St Richard's Hospice for supporting their family Jonathan and Carrie-Anne Dew have now kindly offered to loan the five statues to the hospice for six months so they can be enjoyed by patients and families. They successfully bid on Global Warming, Wellifant, Muddy Walks, Panda and Inky, totalling over £100,000 during the auction at DRPG in Hartlebury. Mrs Dew said, We are long-time supporters of St Richard's Hospice because my husband's parents and my granddad were cared for by the hospice. It was not just about us coming away with the elephants. The main point was to say thank you to St Richard's. The support they give you makes you feel like you are not alone. They are just amazing. I don't know how they do it day in and day out. The couple from Hallow were at the auction with their daughters Rosie, 7, and Molly, 14. They were very excited last night, and if they could have, they would have bought all of the elephants. They were really happy with the elephants they have got. Behind the scenes at Thursday's auctions, successful bidders could see the elephants up close. David Ogden, chief executive of the KeySafe, let his 10-year-old daughter bid on the elephant Sparkle and also successfully bid on Ash. St Richard's is a great local charity and we supported them and we supported them again and will support them over and over. The KeySafe has already supported local charities and this is the perfect opportunity to share our success with a local charity. Roman and Vincent Williams will be bringing Elephant Jackson to their garden in Helmick Road after £7,000 winning bid. Mr Williams says... We like Jackson Pollock's style of art, so it just fits the bill and would be nice to have in the garden. Mrs Williams added, I wanted something colourful in the garden that would look nice in the flower bed. St Richard's is also an excellent charity to help and support. I don't think there is anyone in Worcester who doesn't know someone who has been supported by them. Worcester Bosch will be proudly featuring the elephant, it sponsored, Silverella, at the front of its headquarters in Cotswold Way. Vic Billings and Sue Pennington successfully bid £7,200 on the elephant. Another Worcester-based business, Spectrum Environmental, will also be bringing Elephant Hive in the herd of their offices at Checkett Lane. 
Chief Executive Stephen Hunt said, We liked it because the theme fits with our business in that we are an environmental business. Nobody at work knows we are here, so this is going to be a surprise and it's going to be in our refractory. Artist Jess Perrin was there on the night and spoke of her excitement. It's always really exciting to come to the auction, especially if the bidders are in the room. It's great getting to meet them afterwards. Artist Ahmet Singh, whose elephant Azazia and Sundar went for £6,800 and £9,000, also said watching the auction was exciting. It's actually thrilling you want your elephant to do as well as possible to raise as much money as it can for the charity. Tricia Cavell, fundraising director at St Richard's Hospice, said, It was an incredible night at auction and we're thrilled our herd rate £368,000 for our care. Each year we need to find close to £10 million to keep the hospice doors open, 80% of which comes from the generosity of our supporters. So we send a heartfelt thank you to our amazing community for supporting us, not just on nights like this auction, but each and every day. We simply couldn't do it without you. Over the summer, 66 elephants paraded through the city streets and opened spaces for eight weeks, attracting thousands of visitors from all over the country. Monday, October the 18th. In at the deep end. Plans revealed for former pool site. New pictures reveal major proposals which will transform the site of a derelict former city swimming pool. Sanctuary Housing has revealed its proposals to build a mix of 40 affordable two to four bed homes and one bed flats on the site of the former Sansom Walk swimming pool in Worcester. The former swimming pool closed at the end of 2016 and was finally demolished this summer. The plans include two apartment blocks housing 28 flats and 12 homes as well as 87 parking spaces and cycle storage. Almost a third of the parking spaces will be saved for residents in Chestnut Street. A statement included with the application said, The proposal site is an infill site in a highly sustainable urban area with good access to public transport, good access by bicycle and on foot, and shops and services within easy walking distance. The proposal will increase density, making efficient use of land, and will provide new affordable housing in a sustainable location contributing towards Worcester's housing targets and towards the government objective of boosting the supply of housing. The submission of the planning application for housing comes after several years of delays. The derelict swimming pool was due to be demolished in early 2019, but work was delayed due to a higher-than-expected amount of asbestos being found. It was eventually demolished this year at an estimated cost of £2.64 million. The swimming pool closed in December 2016 following the huge multi-million pound redevelopment of the city's Purdiswell Leisure Centre. The council agreed to move ahead with demolishing the building in January 2017 before deciding the land would be used for new homes in July later that year. 
the city council had agreed to sell the site to Sanctuary Housing and YMCA in March 2018, and plans were revealed to convert the site into 22 two-bedroom shared ownership homes, 76 accommodation units for 18 to 35-year-olds, a business hub and a communal enterprise space. A number of surveys were carried out in 2017 to find out how much asbestos was in the building before the contract for the demolition work was put out to tender. Additional surveys in September 2018 found more asbestos than was expected, leading to further investigations. Plans backed by the council in July 2019 said demolition should have started in February 2020 with an original completion date of October revealed in the committee papers. The city council then said in February last year, just before the first Covid lockdown hit, it hoped the building would be demolished by the end of the year. Okay, my next headline is from Tuesday, October the 19th. £2,000 taken from house. A man carrying a football is being sought after cash and credit cards were stolen from a home in Worcester. CCTV video of the man has been shared widely on social media following the burglary in Albert Road off Wilds Lane on Saturday morning. Sailor, if Iftgar Ahmed, the brother of the victim, who asked to remain anonymous, is appealing for the public's help to find the man, who is believed to have been in the area at the time. He said, My sister went out shopping and saw this man playing with a football in the street. The neighbour said someone jumped over the wall and broke in through the front door. Two handbags and £2,000 in cash, which was in a box, were stolen. He continued, The thief also stole two credit cards from her. Contactless payments of around £30 were made at the Tesco in St Peter's and the Commandery petrol station in Bath Road. As soon as my sister realised, she put a stop on the cards. Neighbours yesterday said they had seen police in the road investigating the burglary. One neighbour said, I'm surprised a burglary has happened here. We don't usually have burglaries here. Albert Road is the proverbial leafy quiet street where you could leave your door open. After a spate of burglaries last month, that time in Hallow, police put out a warning for residents there to be vigilant. Among the advice to residents is to always keep front, patio and back doors closed and locked when you're in the house or in the garden or when leaving a property, as police say leaving them open makes homes an easy target for thieves. The paper asked West Mercia Police for the latest on their investigation into the break-in, but police did not respond before our deadline. Anyone with information is asked to call police on 101 or call Crime Stoppers anonymously on 0800-555-111. Well, this story is from Wednesday, October 20th, and the headline is Political Cobblers. And the subtitle is Friends Told Dressing as Women for Charity Could Offend. Appropriately, is on page three. Um... Yes, and then the subtitle, Storm Over Drag Events, and it reads, A group of men who dress in women's clothing to raise money for a charity say they have been told by the charity bosses their fundraising is potentially offensive. 
Members and supporters of Upton Rugby Club have dressed in drag for the Leo Sayer All Dea and also held other fundraisers for 18 years to raise more than £40,000 for St Richard's Hospice. But the group said it has been told its latest efforts cannot be promoted by the hospice because it might offend the LGBT community. St Richard's Chief Executive Jean Patel says they appreciated the group's fundraising but were striving to be mindful of equality, diversity and inclusion. But Mark Tomlinson from Upton called it PC Gone Mad and has lodged a formal complaint with the hospice. He said St Richard's is a cause that is very close to our hearts. We lost Justin Mawson from the rugby club at 34 in 2007 and my wife Pip in early 2008. Both were cared for by St Richard's. They are a fantastic service and give absolutely outstanding care. He continued, It's not about publicity or recognition, but it's about the ridiculous excuse they gave for not doing it. It's just political cobblers. I'm sure we're not the only charitable organisation to come across this bureaucracy. Every year we buy our outfits at their shops. They get them in specially, often paying over £20 a head and then tour the town visiting pubs and accepting donations for the hospice. Suddenly, a photo taken in their Upton shop has triggered an outright ban. What makes it even more ridiculous is that we give back to the costumes, we give the costumes back to the shops, and then they can sell them on again. He says the group was asked for information and a picture from the hospice. We're looking for highlight their efforts. He says they were later told that peace would not be run and the charity would not use the picture in case it offended the LGBT community. Mrs. Patel said. We truly appreciate all the fundraising that the Richard Saints and the Leo Sayers have undertaken over the many years towards our care. We have received a complaint from Mr Tomlinson and are investigating the matter. As a caring and compassionate organisation, we are always striving to be mindful of equality, diversity and inclusion. Mr Tomlinson says the group had been in touch with an LGBT charity to discuss whether it's offensive and have already chosen a different charity to support next year as well as Leo Sayer or Dea, named after the fact that the group have all had the same star sign. They have held three charity balls and pushed a car around the rugby pitch for 24 hours. And finally, today's headline article, Thursday, October the 21st, Race on for flu jabs. Racecourse Vaccination Centre deals with thousands. There has been a huge surge in people opting to get the flu jab, with 500 people vaccinated in just four hours earlier this week. The new mass vaccination centre only opened at Worcester Racecourse on September the 23rd, and already thousands of patients have been vaccinated, with queues occasionally building outside. In the last 16 days alone, Over 11,000 patients have received the flu jab at the centre, well over a quarter of the 40,000 people in Worcester who are eligible. David McDowell, patient quality manager at Worcester City Primary Care Network, says he has been blown away by the response. He said, We've had an overwhelmingly positive response to the flu clinic at Worcester Racecourse with well over 11,000 patients getting vaccinated in 16 days, including 500 yesterday, Tuesday, October the 19th, morning alone, which is a real boost to the immunity of those patients who need it most. The new centre is a walk-in clinic, with GPs able to send out invites to patients in advance. This has meant waiting times can be unpredictable, 
but staff say it rarely exceeds more than 10 minutes. Mr McDowell added, with this site operating purely as a walk-in centre, it's expected that there may be some queues on occasion, particularly right after we open. But our queuing time has been less than 10 minutes, even at our busiest. Patients can help us by waiting to attend this centre until they've received an invitation text from their GP, as these are being rolled out gradually to help us manage our visitor flow. But anyone who's eligible for a flu vaccine on the NHS is welcome through our doors, and we look forward to seeing more patients very soon. Staff also confirmed that around 9am in the morning tends to be the busiest time, with some patients queuing up before opening time. A staff member added, Traditionally, people are not quite as keen to get their flu jabs, but because of everything that's gone on, that has changed, that has changed, and people are super aware now, which is really encouraging. So now I'm going to ask Moira to read a sports item for us. Okay, so this is Hope for Wolves. Worcester Wolves have announced the first player signing ahead of the inaugural British Wheelchair Basketball Women's Premier League. The new league was announced in April 2021 and the Wolves have been busy behind the scenes preparing for their debut. Now they've announced the signing of their first player, Sarah Hope. Hope, a classification 4.5 athlete, joins from the Coventry Wheelchair Basketball Academy, which she joined in 2010. In her time there, she has won six league titles across the Women's League Division 1, National League Division 2 and Division 1 South. In February 2017, Hope earned her first call-up to the Great Britain team and in 2018, she was part of the team that won a silver medal at the World Championships. On signing for the Worcester Wolves, Hope said, I'm really excited to be playing in the inaugural season of WPL with Worcester Wolves. I used to watch the Wolves BBL team play, and now being back here on this court seems like coming home. I can't think of a better club or group of girls to share this experience with. Worcester Wolves managing director, Mick Donovan, is excited by the signing and believes Hope will bring a wealth of experience both on and off the court. He said, we are delighted to welcome Sarah to the Wolves. Already she's shown leadership both on and off the court and we are sure that she will be an integral part of the team and very popular with our Wolves fans. The league is not only the first professional parasport league in the UK, but also the first of its kind for women's wheelchair basketball in the world. The University of Worcester will serve as one of four high-performance partnerships, which also include... Cardiff Metropolitan University, Loughborough University and the University of East London. Worcester Wolves said further announcements will be made after the coming weeks. And now some of the published letters from the past week. First, um, a couple from Tuesday of this week. The first one is from Paul Middleton of Worcester. And it's headed, Best Way to Honour the Life of a Fine Man. Dear Editor, The death of MP Sir David Amos is sad and senseless charity for his grieving wife and family, a shocked Parliament and the wider stunned population. 
Yet again, there is frenzied talk of protection, avoidance and security for our MPs, and maybe the armed forces and or the police, etc. Some nostalgic, maybe revengeful individuals and parties are yet again calling for the death penalty. Our House of Commons speaker intones the simple truth that David's life must not be lost. There must be a legacy. But unfortunately, already his life has now been lost, unnecessarily and cruelly. Surely there is no doubt that the life of David Amos will be honoured and respected. There'll be a commemoration, perhaps a plaque in the house, and maybe even a gun salute. And already his family asks society to set aside hatred. Wisely, they also call for more kindness in the world. However, this will not happen so long as we mandate our leaders to wage worldwide war as the only way to settle disputes and so setting a negative example to 7 billion people. In truth, we must respect the quick and the dead, and we also must honour all deaths in war or in peace. Born in 1572, John Donne wrote that no man is an island. Each man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Surely now is the time to honour David by adapting the phrase level up to also level down, north, south, east and west. Then we will soon create a more loving and peaceful, happier and equitable world. And in so doing, the honourable life of Sir David Amos will be celebrated in the greatest, most true, most loving and widest possible way. David Amos, thank you. R.I.P. Okay, my letter is from Julie Reynolds of Worcester. Dear Editor, what a ridiculous world this has become. For the best part of two years, people have been terrorised into believing that they are going to die from COVID-19 if they don't wear a face covering. An estimated 1.6% billion of them ended up in the oceans last year. Recently, Natasha's law came into force because one girl unfortunately suffered a fatal allergic reaction and her parents sued the company. This has necessitated shops printing information on enormous plastic labels with reams of plastic backing material. Today, the Prime Minister said, we should wake up to the damage being done to the environment and the sheer volume of plastic that is being dumped. Then there is the global warming issue with its associated protest groups. All very commendable since this is more likely to wipe out the human race than a flu virus. But until China, who are building a coal-fired power station every month, stop belching carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, they may as well take a pee in the Irish Sea. Humans have become arrogant, selfish, greedy and materialistic. We have ruled the planet that we live on and it will eventually burn it and able to sustain our dominance to the detriment of the other less demanding plants and animals who inhabit the earth. 
Well, this is a letter from Dr. Ken Pollock, who was a formerly a cabinet member, Economy and Infrastructure with Chicago Council. Uh, letters entitled Being More Positive. Dear Editor, while it is flattering to get a name credit from Nigel Crisp in his letter of October the 13th, Why More Offices, it is sad that he has such a negative view of the economy of Wittershire and the value of the new Parkway station. The last 24 months have been unprecedented uh, trouble for our economy, and the start of the pandemic coincided with the Parkway opening. Before the lockdown, the 500-space car park was two-thirds full, and it will be again when the economy recovers. Mr Crisp would never build a new office block while others remain empty. Fortunately, some people are more economically savvy and they build new offices and open new railway stations. I'm happy to be associated with the latter. My second letter is on a subject about which I seem to have heard an awful lot, in fact, in increasing amounts lately. And it's about people who have specific health conditions, which mean that even after their COVID vaccination, they have severely weakened immune systems with few or no antibodies. And it's from Laura Kirby, Myeloma UK Chief Executive. And it's headed, Third Jab Not a Booster. Dear Editor, As a charity representing the 24,000 people in the UK with the incurable blood cancer myeloma, we are extremely concerned to see vulnerable patients being denied life-saving COVID-19 vaccines and missed off vaccination lists simply because doctors do not understand the difference between the third dose and a booster. Patient reports show the terms third dose and booster are being used interchangeably by GPs and clinicians, leading to uncertainty about which should be given first, if any at all. On September 1st, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation announced that people with severely weakened immune systems at the time of their first and or second vaccination would receive a third dose of a COVID-19 vaccine as part of the standard vaccination schedule. This third dose, the JCVI said, should be followed by a booster six months later. While there is no difference in the ingredients of the vaccine and booster, it is key for medical staff to administer them in the correct order to make sure immunocompromised patients get as much protection from the virus as possible. Since the JCVI's announcement, the Myeloma UK InfoLine has been inundated with queries from concerned patients who have received conflicting information from their GPs or been told they only need a booster. In theory, the decision of who is eligible for a third dose of the vaccine and when they should receive it is ultimately up to patients' clinical specialist team in hospitals. Clinicians should then contact patients' GPs and advise them on who should be offered a third top-up dose. However, in practice, the decision falls to GPs and vaccination centres. 
Patients should not be made to wade through red tape to convince doctors they're eligible for a third vaccine. The government must ensure that NHS systems can swiftly and accurately identify patients to make sure they are given the protection they need. I understand the key word in all this is a third primary dose rather than booster. That makes the differentiation. Moira. Okay. So my second letter is from Timothy Parker of Worcester. Dear Editor, on Monday I was at a fully packed event for the City of Worcester hosted by Redeem Our Communities. The aim was to make fruitful connections to bring about transformation through partnerships within communities in and around Worcester. There were many high-ranking officers and politicians there in support. A comment made by former Worcester Mayor Jabba Riaz about integrating new residents to the city and subsequent comments by others about the lack of community facilities, the growth in homelessness and the shortage of affordable housing caused me to ponder on the effectiveness of Section 106 planning agreements which now fail to provide the full infrastructure and resources needed to support our growing and increasingly diverse city. And how many times do we read in these pages about our NHS Trust not being able to secure such contributions? Our planning offices and councillors face unrelenting and irresistible pressure from central government to grant planning permission for housing development or face penalties. Why does this persist? In other news, 25% of Tory party funding comes from property developers. That was in the Financial Times on July the 29th. In other news, Tyson Fury donates entire purse to the homeless. Well, this letter is from Monday, October the 18th, and it's entitled Getting Bored of Cyclists Whining. Dear Editor, I have in the last couple of weeks read two articles in the Worcester News relating to biking around Worcester. One, while more balanced than the other, still focuses on the negative. The other is simply a moan fest and makes statements that are simply not true. The first article describes a cyclist route from the top of London Road to the west of the city. The focus, they focus in on the congestion and speed of vehicles on London Road, and while the author accepts that they minimise this by using back roads, they do state that it is the most direct route to the west side of the city. I would challenge them on that. If they cycle through uh, Red Hill Lane and through Battenhall Park, cut across Bath Road, through to the Church Car Park, and then on to Diglis Park, and then over Diglis Bridge, and use the Riverside Path, they would find not only the journey quicker, but also be able to use the cycle path for more than 90% of their journey. I use this route all the time with my dog, and it's safe that my dog only has to be out on his leave for the smallest route across the Bath Road to Diglis Park. The second article, far less balanced, has a moan fest about cyclist access and use of the new Worcestershire Parkway station. To compare the treatment of cyclists in relation to access at the station to black people in South Africa in the 80s is both ridiculous and offensive. He then states that he has to carry his laden bike up and down hundreds of steps. Of course, he could do that. He could choose to do that, but there are lifts provided. So he's factually incorrect when he says there aren't. I make these points not because I'm against cyclists. I love riding my bike and think that Worcester is well equipped with facilities and infrastructure for me to do it safely. I make them because I am bored and tired of a small community of whining cyclists. 
This article is from Tuesday, October the 19th, and its headline is Big Night at Stadium. The Big Worcester Sleepout returned after a year's COVID-19 enforced absence. Around 50 people wrapped up, grabbed their sleeping bags and turned out a six-way stadium in a bid to end rough sleeping in Worcester. Multiple local businesses took part in the event, including AC Everett Catering, who ensured everyone was fed by providing free burgers and fries to those who took part. Sleepers have raised £13,650, which will be split between St Paul's Hostel, Mag's Day Centre and Warriors Community Foundation. Jonathan Sutton, the Chief Executive of St Paul's Hostel in Worcester, said 2020 was a pretty rough year for us all. But 2020 was a year when plenty of people who were at risk of sleeping rough, or indeed were sleeping rough, were got off the streets and rehomed. Thank you to everyone who attended the big sleep out and to those who have donated and gifted things for us. And please help us lock in those gains we made from 2020 so that we make Worcestershire a place where all forms of homelessness are rare, brief and non-reoccurring. There is still time to take part in this year's sleep out and a virtual event called Sleep In to Sleep Out will be taking place for the first time over this weekend, giving the chance for families and young children to get involved. The link for donations will also remain open into the next week as organisers are targeting smashing their £15,000 by the end of the weekend. Right, the next one is from Friday, October the 15th. And it's quite unusual in that the article on the 15th is about a lady who committed an offence and was brought to court And then on the Monday following, the magistrates explained why they did not jail her as the result of that hearing. And it's interesting to see how the judicial system works. Um, And I'll leave the rest to your judgment. So, the first article. Knife threat by naked woman. A drunk woman got naked in a Worcester care home's communal garden and threatened to knife her elderly next-door neighbour, a court heard. Hayley Hope had been living at Lincoln Green off Liverpool Road in Ronxwood, Worcester, when she made the threats and a few days later was seen naked by other residents, one of whom called the police. The 56-year-old who had the court heard had mental health problems admitted exposure and using threatening, abusive or insultive words or behaviour when she appeared before Worcester magistrates yesterday. An injunction order secured by Platform Housing in August prohibits her from causing a nuisance to residents. She's now also banned from returning to Lincoln Green. The offences were committed in breach of two suspended sentence orders. One order of 12 weeks in custody suspended for 12 months was imposed on August the 9th for being drunk and disorderly and two offences of failing to surrender to custody. The other order, also 12 weeks, suspended for 12 months, was imposed in June this year for racially, religiously aggravated harassment. Ralph Robbins Landricum, prosecuting, said on September the 4th this year, Hope was asked to turn her music down by her neighbour. She became abusive. I am going to hit you, she said, and I will knife you. This is 
cause the woman to whom she spoke to become fearful. Another resident stood between the woman and the defendant and instructed Hope to go home, which she did. September the 7th this year, the same neighbour again called police. Hope was outside her property in the communal garden and she was completely naked and shouting. In interview, she told an officer she had not been naked but went to see her neighbour called Roger wearing a bikini and denied saying she would knife her neighbour. When asked why witnesses had said she had been naked, Hope stated her neighbours have got it in for her. She didn't appear to be regretful of any of her behaviour or acknowledge any wrongdoing. She was more annoyed her neighbours would make such complaints, said Mr Robbins Landricum. Despite having admitted for the offences, Hope said in court, that's not me, I'd never do that. Barry Newton, defending, said the defendant, who had 11 previous convictions, had mental health issues and a long-standing problem with alcohol. Mr Newton said his client had lived in Keswick Drive in Worcester, where she had been happy. Unfortunately, there was a particular male neighbour who made her life a misery, taking over parts of her garden. That led to her leaving in rather dismal circumstances, said the city solicitor. He said other residents at Lincoln Green were elderly, while Hope was 56. A probation officer confirmed a mental health diagnosis of borderline personality disorder and went on to describe Hope, now of Chester Road North in Kidderminster, as a very vulnerable woman. Magistrates deferred sentence until January the 17th. In the meantime, she must comply with any rehabilitation activities required of her by probation and attend any appointments with Craston, which runs the Adult Alcohol and Drug Recovery Service. And now the article on Monday last, Magistrates Explain the Ruling. Magistrates have explained why they did not jail a drunk woman who appeared naked in a retirement home garden and made knife threats. As previously reported, Haley Hope had been living at Lincoln Green off Liverpool Road in Ronxwood, Worcester, when she made the threats and a few days later was seen naked by residents, one of whom called police. She has mental health problems and admitted exposure and using threatening, abusive or insulting words or behaviour when she appeared before the magistrates in Worcester on Thursday. However, despite being in breach of two suspended sentence orders, magistrates decided not to jail her, choosing instead to defer sentence while she gets help by support agencies and the probation service. The bench had already been told that the defendant had issues with alcohol and mental health problems, specifically borderline personality disorder. Philip Newton, the chairman of the bench, said, As I said before, the starting point when you breach a suspended sentence is to be sent to prison. You have been given one last chance not to go to prison. You would have been given a very strong warning that if you did commit another offence, you would be going to prison. We're quite uncomfortable if we didn't do that. But we have to look at it as a whole. 
the interests of justice are important. We have to look at what would be right in the longer term for society and for yourself, so this doesn't happen again. You can't keep on doing this. In deferring, Mr Newton said this was to see whether you comply and will get the help and really try to get yourself out of the alcoholism and get yourself better so you don't commit these crimes. Deferring sentence isn't something which is normally done, he said. An injunction order secured by Platform Housing in August prohibits her from causing a nuisance to residents. She's now also banned from returning to Lincoln Green. The offences were committed in breach of two suspended sentence order. We've heard about the length and reason for those. Ralph Robbins Landricum, prosecuting, said on September the 4th this year, Hope was asked to take, turn her music down by her neighbour and became abusive, stating, I'm going to hit you and I will knife you. And as a result, the woman has become fearful. Another resident stood between the woman and the defendant at the time and instructed Hope to go home, which she did. On September the 7th, the same neighbour again called police. Hope was outside her property in the communal garden and was completely naked and shouting. Hope, now of Chester Road North in Kidderminster, will be sentenced in January the 17th next year. An interesting two articles as to how the legal system works and how some compassion might bring more positive results. Um, the top judge in Worcester says a backlog is causing distress for crime victims as some city cases are sent to a new Nightingale court in Sirencester. Judge James Burbage QC, Worcester's most senior judge, urged advocates to make best use of the time available during trials at Worcester Crown Court as courts up and down the land wrestle a large backlog of cases exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. The Worcester Court has been using courts at Birmingham Civil and Family Justice Centre, Birmingham Crown Court, Nottingham Crown Court, Telford Justice Centre and Wolverhampton Combined Court. A Ministry of Justice spokesman said, we use additional venues to hold as many hearings as possible in response to coronavirus. Sirencester's courthouse reopened as a Nightingale Court on January the 25th this year and staff at the Worcester Court have confirmed that some cases from the city have been heard there. Sirencester is 40 miles from Worcester with the journey taking over two and a half hours on public transport including train and bus. The drive takes around 46 minutes. Judge Burbridge, speaking at court earlier this month, said, I'm having to tell complainants in November their cases will not be heard. It's extremely distressing on a daily basis. Police and Crime Commissioner Martin Searle offered the Sirencester building back to HM Courts and Tribunal Service as a temporary means of reducing the backlog of cases which have more than doubled in Gloucestershire during the pandemic. The building ceased to operate in 2012 as part of a Ministry of Justice closure programme which saw many of Gloucestershire's local courts axed. We reported in January how all four of Her Majesty's Justice Chief Inspectors united to express grave concerns about the potential long-term impact of the backlog, which by then had soared to 53,000 cases, 
nationally during the pandemic. By June, the backlog had risen to nearly 60,000 cases. High-profile cases at Worcester Crown Court, including murder and rape trials, are among the cases delayed by the pandemic. Last year, the murder trial of Martin Saberi, 53, was delayed until February this year because of the pandemic. Saberi ultimately admitted to the murder of a transgender woman, 51-year-old Army, sorry, Amy Griffiths, in a flat in Chalverton Court, Droitwich, between January the 11th and January the 14th, 2019. He was given a life sentence in March and must serve a minimum of 24 years and 10 months. Well, this is an article from Monday, October 18th, and it's entitled Pigs Going to Market. A Worcestershire pig farmer has said he is having no trouble in getting pigs slaughtered, despite the national shortage of butchers. The shortage in industrial slaughterhouses nationally has left some farmers with too many pigs on their farms, leading to warnings 10,000 pigs a week could have to be destroyed imminently. But Mark Bailey of Black Pig Company in Inkbury said the national issues had not affected the county farm and they did not have an excess of number of pigs at the farm. We are having no trouble getting pigs slaughtered and butchered, he said. The scaremongering has driven the prices through the floor now through that we are now losing money selling to the market. There isn't an issue, but it's making it financially unviable to keep pigs. He continued, we use a number of abattoirs. None of them are reporting an issue. It may be these farmers who are complaining have been relying on one abattoir where there is staff shortages. We are seeing these national reports, but on the ground, it's a completely different picture. It's a bit like the fuel crisis. We have a problem if people panic by after hearing about it. There have been a similar issue with turkeys. We have seen people getting in their order early after hearing about a problem, but there are no shortages. In response to the crisis, the government announced 800 visas for butchers to come to work for the UK for up to six months, a move Oliver Cartwright, Worcestershire's NFU spokesman, said would help with the processing of the backlog of pigs on UK farms. Under the plans, there will also be funding for additional meat storage, moves to introduce processing of animals on Saturdays and the potential for longer working hours. National Farmers Union Vice, Pre- Vice President Tom Bradshaw called the visa announcement a step in the right direction. Nationally, there have been warnings that up to 150,000 pigs could be destroyed as waste as a labour shortage in meat processing has led to a backlog of animals ready for slaughter. And now from Wednesday of this week, dangerous, in inverted commas, dog ran amok. A sex offender who squeezed a female police officer's bottom has reappeared in court after letting his dangerous dog run amok during a row with frightened neighbours. Sam Peters, previously of Worcester, admitted a string of offences, including scratching a neighbour's car, threatening behaviour, goading a dangerously out-of-control dog to chase a cat and shouting and swearing as two little dogs cowered in their owner's arms. The 30-year-old of Anglia Crescent, Kemsey, near Worcester, appeared before city magistrates where he pleaded guilty to criminal damage to a Kia Rio belonging to Dale Matthews on September 23rd and sending a Facebook message which conveyed a threat to Anthony Collins on June 26th. 
Peters further admitted using threatening, abusive or insulting words or behaviour to Claire Smith on September the 23rd and being the owner, person in charge, of a dog that was dangerously out of control again on September the 23rd. John Dove, prosecuting, said the Facebook message involved setting up a group titled Grasses, in which he sent lengthy abusive messages to Mr Collins, who took screenshots of them. Peters refers to hypocrites and bitches and wrote, Climb out from under your rocks and stay out of my business and vice versa. Mr Dove said Peters had been outside his address drinking for the majority of the day and was rowdy and acting antisocially on September the 23rd. Police received numerous calls from residents in the street complaining about dogs being out of control. The defendant owns a black Staffordshire bull terrier, said Mr Dove. A doorbell camera picked up his dog, Brock, chasing a cat. Mr Dove said, The defendant and his friend are heard goading the dog to attack the cat while it was running away. A number of neighbours phoned the police saying they were scared to get out of their cars to go to their houses in fear that the dog was aggressive. The prosecutor said Peters was captured on the CCTV of various properties, scratching Mr Matthews' car bonnet with an unknown object, an act which could not only be seen but heard on the footage. Ms Smith was described as picking up her two small dogs when Peters' dog approached them, running out of control. She said Peters told her, put your dogs down and I'll show you what my dog can do. Peters was also described as swearing at the woman, calling her an obscene word and shouting abuse. In 2010, we reported how Peters was convicted of a sexual assault after squeezing a female police officer's bottom in Lowesmore, Worcester, and had to sign the sex offender register. For three of the offences, Peters was handed a 36-month community order to include the Resolve programme, 26 sessions, 30 rehabilitation activity requirement days and an alcohol abstinence monitoring requirement for 90 days. For having a dog that was dangerously out of control, he was handed a conditional discharge for two years, which included a condition that the dog must be kept on a lead outside the house. Magistrates ordered Peters to pay £500 in compensation for the damage to the car. The bench also ordered him to pay £135 costs. A potty-mouthed drunk man spat at and threw lager at police and damaged a woman's dream car after binge drinking at a Worcester pub. William McKay admitted two assaults against emergency workers, criminal damage and threatening behaviour when he appeared before magistrates in Worcester. The 22-year-old of Randwick Drive, Warnden, called officers pigs and feds and made an obscene reference to someone as dead nan. 
during a series of incidents between September 10th and 11th this year. Police arrived in Lyme Avenue, Britfields, to reports of two males in possession of bats who were shouting and screaming, said Ralph Robbins Landricum, prosecuting. He said the initial victim in this case was not supportive of police inquiries, but officers carried out an area search. McKay was found riding his bike and was heard to say, come on you pigs, to swear at officers and make the obscene reference. During the incident, he twice spat towards PC Church, although the saliva did not make contact with him after the officers stepped out of the way. McKay also repeated an earlier offensive slur. As an officer, an emergency worker just doing his job, he shouldn't have to avoid someone spitting at him, said Mr Robbins Landricum. McKay also threw lager over PC Jeffries, which landed on his face and uniform and left him drenched. When arrested, McKay gave a no-comment interview. A woman later made a complaint to police that her car had been damaged by the defendant in Lyme Avenue. Mr Robbins Landricum, prosecuting, said the woman referred to McKay shouting and swearing in the street. The defendant was seen pulling a gate off its hinges and throwing a bike at her car. She had an invoice for £966, which included both the cost of repairing the damage and car hire in the meantime. A dent was caused to the car's passenger side rear wheel arch. The car's owner said, I feel incredibly sad this happened. I brought my car over a year ago and it was my dream car and it's taken me years to save up for this car. McKay has previously convictions for assaulting a constable, failing to surrender and two assault offences, both battery matters. Mark Turnbull defending said, Mr McKay doesn't recall an awful lot of what happened on that particular occasion, part of that because he had been drinking. He's not ordinarily a drinker. The solicitor explained that the defendant's mother and her partner had been quite worried about him, referring to his mental health and that as a youngster he was diagnosed with ADHD. He struggled at school. He struggled with education, said the solicitor. Mr Turnbull told magistrates there was clearly some sort of issue between his client and the people at the address in Lyme Avenue and that has become quite heated. He went on to say that McKay deeply regrets what happened on that day and recalled drinking six or seven pints with a friend at the pub before going home and consuming more alcohol. Magistrates placed him on an electronically monitored curfew between 8pm and 6am for the next three months as part of a community order. He was ordered to pay £966 in compensation for the damage to the car and £50 each to both officers. Well, this article is from Friday, October 15th, and is entitled Calls for Action Gathering Pace. More action is needed to crack down on speeding in a village near Melbourne. District Council leader Sarah Rouse has regularly campaigned against speeding in the district. And last week, police were put out in Wells Road in Melbourne and Ryle near Upton as concerns continue about speeding. This follows other campaigns in and around the town. After four crashes into walls in Lysenton in recent times, a public meeting has been held to try and find a solution. Councillor Rouse said, There have been four crashes through walls and over pavements in recent weeks. We invited the police and County Councillor Karen Hanks, but unfortunately she could not attend. However, the police representative was excellent. We discussed as a community the issues we face, and the police representative, Gordon O'Handler, came up with excellent ways forward. 
Blyth Centre has a number of speeding scarecrows put in place around the village to deter drivers from travelling too fast. Around 20 people met at the Royal Oak pub in Lycinton for the community meeting. Councillor Rouse added that they're in touch with Police and Crime Commissioner John Campion for more speed enforcement after 10 people were caught in the village in a single hour. Since the meeting, the Parish Council is looking into a rolling set of traffic measures for the village. Councillor Rouse added, West Mercia Police said there needs to be community action like the Scarecrows and highways action to look at signage and road markings and then police presence to enforce the law. By working together across all the areas, we hope to see real change. Councillor Peter Whiteley has written to Worcestershire County Council to ask that they revisit their decisions and not to look at the road markings, especially given Herefordshire is so much more innovative in their approach. As a community, we will keep working towards solutions on speeding. Police were unable to provide figures on last week's crackdown. Earlier this year, a group of council councillors will put forward a notice of motion about speeding in Malvern. According to the group, an estimated 300,000 to 700,000 birds, at least 3,500 endangered hedgehogs and other wildlife is being mowed down each year on our roads in Worcestershire. And now a positive article about the return of the Royal British Legion after the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's entitled Sissy's RBL Branches Bouncing Back. The Royal British Legion suffered like so many organisations during the COVID-19 pandemic. This was especially so during the numerous lockdowns. The Worcester City branch has certainly bounced back during this, their centenary year. The branch was created in 1921, when the British Legion, later Royal British Legion, was founded by Earl Haig following the Great War. It brought together four organisations, the National Association of Discharged Sailors and Soldiers, the British National Federation of Discharged and Demobilised Sailors and Soldiers, the Comrades of the Great War and the Officers' Association. The Worcester City branch met at numerous locations over the years and even had their own club in St Nicholas Street, later in Lowesmore, before it closed in more recent years. However, the branch remained very active until the pandemic began, and working practices had to change or stop altogether. Telephone buddies helped keep some members in touch, but sadly the poignant Remembrance Sunday and the annual poppy appeal suffered during such unprecedented times. The branch has held numerous face-to-face meetings in recent months and enjoyed a very special service to dedicate their new standard on Sunday, October the 3rd. The service was held at Old St Martin's Church, which was traditionally the church used by the branch when it had the nearby St Nicholas Club. The service was led by the Reverend Colin Butler, who went on to dedicate the new standard carried by the new bearer, David Williams. It was also an opportunity for members old and new to come together, socialise and celebrate a hundred years of service, not self, the motto of the Legion. The standard is very important to the Legion, symbolising everything the organisation stands for, said Paul Harding, branch committee member. The blue cloth signifies loyalty to the crown and fidelity, and the gold name band symbolises service. 
Overall, it acts in the same way as the precious colours and banners carried by Britain's armed forces. New members are always welcome to join the branch, as are poppy appeal collectors as we move closer to remembrance time. To contact the branch, call the secretary Phil Banks on Worcester 745838. And Paul added, The future of the Worcester City branch is looking very bright. The Legion has spent a hundred years evolving and in the 20th cent- 21st century is one of the largest veterans' organisations. It's open to people who have not served in the forces and raises a vast amount of money to support the veterans' community. A Dutch woman who has been in contact with the family of a fallen soldier whose grave she tends, thanks to an appeal in the Worcester News. Anita van Leuven was searching for the family of Lance Sergeant Ernest Walter Smith, who was born in Worcester. She takes care of his grave in the Venray War Cemetery in the Netherlands and wanted to find out more about the World War II soldier. Ernest's niece, Norma Jeff, read the story and the family have been in contact sharing stories and pictures. Mrs Jeff, 75, from Spetchley Road, said, It was lovely to see because my mum spoke about him an awful lot. He was her youngest brother and my mum and her sister used to talk about him so we knew all about him. It's absolutely lovely to think someone is looking after his grave. She continued, My daughter's been on the computer and sent Anita a few messages and she managed to get a photograph sent to her. Ernest was only 22 when he died and my mum had another brother who was in the war who came home injured and then died of his injuries. Ernest is survived by three nieces and two nephews who all live in Worcester or Malvern. Mrs Jeff said he joined the war aged 17 after lying about his age. Lance Sergeant Ernest Walter Smith served in the 5th Battalion Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry and died November 23, 1944, aged just 22. Miss Van Leuven from Lindbergh said the family was so happy and grateful that she had adopted the grave. As well as Mrs Jeff, she had been contacted by the daughter-in-law of Ernest's nephew, Norman. Miss Van Leuven said, Norman remembers his uncle Ernest very well and he and his wife once went to Venray to visit his grave. So did Louise and her husband Richard, Norman's son. They too were so happy and grateful that I had adopted the grave. I received the photograph which was awesome. Now I have a face with the hero. She continued, I'm so honoured to have the opportunity to take care of the grave. I visit the grave regularly to place flowers. I'm very happy to have been able to make contact with the family and I hope so much to stay in touch. I think it's a very special connection. This article is from Friday, October 15th and is entitled Church Hit by Thieves. The vicar of a city church has said it's really sad. This article is from Friday, October the 15th and is entitled Church Hit by Thieves. The vicar of a city church has said it's really sad musical equipment has been stolen from them, the second break-in this year. Reverend Joe Musson has appealed for help finding the thieves who stole a fold-back speaker and a small mixing desk from St George's Church in Barbon. Pam Summers, church warden of a St George's Square-based church, says the thief, the theft was discovered by staff on October the 8th. The equipment was taken from a cupboard in the Magdalen Hall, the church warden said. 
It is shared with Clane's church and they found it missing last week. It must have been taken in the fortnight before. We use it for our cafe church event, a monthly casual worship event for families which includes music. It's a real shame. It's our second break-in this year. We were broken into in August. We were surprised then because nothing was taken. We were having work done on the toilets. We think they must have been looking for the builder's tools on that one. We are not sure who broke in that time. The church is in the public right-of-way, so there are always people around here. Neighbours in the square have been really good supporting us. We are always surprised by the generosity of people. If they can help improve our security, ordinate and replace the equipment, that would be brilliant. Reverend Musson asked anyone spotting people trying to sell the equipment to get in touch with the church. She said, Please message me if you saw anything like this being removed from the Magdalene Hall at the side of St George's. We are really sad someone has done this. A number of people sent messages on Reverend Musson's social media post about the theft. Christine Allen wrote, That's rotten. Well, Alison Balas says... I'm sorry, that's really sad to hear. Do you hope you can get the items returned? Charlie Mansfield added, So sorry to hear this, Joe. I hope you can recover them. Warnden Police has contacted for comment, but no one has responded as yet. And now, an article about Worcester's history. And it's headed, Key, Q-U-A-Y, to unlocking part of city's history. And it's about... Key Street, which those of you who know your city centre, goes from Broad Street down the side of All Saints Church and down towards the river. The Romans established a simple mooring point below the early settlement that would become Worcester. This allowed an iron smelting industry to develop and in turn brought people to the area to trade. As trade grew on the Severn, a new quayside was created. This started life as nothing more than a site on the river bank where boats could beach and moor together waiting for the rise of the next tide. A walled quayside was eventually created. Today we call the area South Quay. A maze of narrow lanes ran down to the river from the high street. However, by the medieval period, a new road was created to allow wagons, carts and pack animals to move with ease between the quay and the city centre. This was the birth of Key Street, also seen in old documents. Key Street became an area with good quality merchants' houses at the top of the street, then humble inns, warehouses, cheap lodging houses, storage buildings, and in some cases, illegal hovels for the very poor at the bottom. When we look at the documents from the 19th century, we can see trades ranging from coal merchants, fishermen, barge builders and maltsters. A huge number living in Key Street would have been watermen and boatmen who helped Worcester to thrive as a port on the Severn. The area was also filled with inns that were often referred to as smugglers' inns and smuggling dens. Legends also mention secret tunnels that ran up to the high street, tunnels that have so far eluded both historians and archaeologists alike. The Seven Trow was one of the more popular pubs in the area, described as a well-frequented public house when it came up for sale. But in 1906, 
The chief constable described it as structurally deficient, sanitary conditions inadequate. This was down to the fact that it was an old building that stood in the damp air of the riverside. The Huerry, or Old Huerry, stood on the corner of Key Street and Copenhagen Street and was well established as a smuggler's inn and waterman's pub with timbers that dated back to the medieval period. Unfortunately, a fire reduced its three storeys to two. The Huerry, like most of the drinking establishment in the area, was known for its violent and drink fueled brawls, illegal lock-ins and a place where the police could sometimes be paid to look the other way. Numerous unfortunates also walked the dimly lit streets, waiting for their customers. Some of the inns were used by the city coroner, who inspected the bodies of people dragged out of the seven. These people often fell into the river late at night or were killed further upstream whilst working on the river. The health report compiled by Sir Charles Hastings in 1832 described how the nearby church of All Saints stood above Key Street and helped the area deteriorate further. The graveyard of the church sat above the houses and when it rained heavily, putrid matter oozed through the walls. Mm. Rats were also common in the area, which led to people killing the vermin and claiming money on the rats' tails handed in the Guildhall, a popular activity with children. <laughs> in the 1920s, Canon Philpot, the rector from St Andrew's Church, took on the Huerry and turned it into the St Andrew's Parish Club for Men and Boys. Some improvements had been made to the area, but it was all too little and too late. The city's importance as a port slowly waned, and the housing of Key Street fell further into repair, disrepair, and the city council was forced to make a decision to remove the slums and move an entire community to the high ground outside the city. This brought many people to the new housing of Ronxwood, Brickfields and Tolodyne. So we've got some advice now for um, pet owners. So helping pets in fireworks season. Fireworks season is fast approaching and with it comes the annual challenge for dog owners to keep their pooches safe. Dogs Trust is providing guidance to dog owners on how to keep scared pups safe during the winter months with events such as bonfire night, Halloween and New Year's all on the horizon. Chris Slight, the manager at Dogs Trust Evesham, said, Dogs have approximately four times more sensitive hearing than humans, so the loud cracks and bangs of fireworks can often be a terrifying and confusing experience for them. Fireworks tend to be sudden, unpredictable and bright. This combination can be distressing and have a lasting impact on dogs. He continued, There are lots of things dog owners can do to help make fireworks less stressful for their dogs. Simple steps, such as providing safe spaces for them to hide or settling them before the fireworks start, can make a big difference. We would also urge anyone thinking of putting on their own firework display to consider the welfare of their four-legged friends and others in the neighbourhood by following our firework dog code. Top tips include walking and feeding your dog before it gets dark, securing the garden, providing a safe space and keeping them occupied and comforted. 
Mr Slight said, For those who have welcomed a puppy into their life recently, we also have free sound therapy programmes on our website that can help to gradually expose puppies to different noises in a positive way so they perceive them as normal. If your dog is very worried by fireworks or other loud noises, they might need longer-term treatment. If that is the case, it would be a good idea for owners to have a chat with their vet. They can check there are no underlying health conditions that might be affecting behaviour and then owners can discuss referral to an accredited behaviouralist for support and tailored advice. Well, this article is from Wednesday, October the 20th and is entitled Climate Protest Goes in Feet First. Hundreds of children's shoes will be on display in the centre of the city as part of an environmental protest. Members of Extinction Rebellion, Worcester, will sit in Cathedral Square for a future of our children protest from noon to 2.30pm on Saturday. The protest is ahead of the upcoming United Nations Climate Change Conference, uh, known as COP26, in Glasgow. Travis Blake from Lansdowne Road, Worcester, and father of 8- and 12-year-old girls, donated football boots and slippers his girls have grown out of the protest. He said, Frankly, I'm terrified for the future of our children. Their lives will be massively impacted by climate change. Today's politicians are the last with a chance to lead us to net zero in time. Will they confront the reality and offer people a meaningful route to change? Will they choose to lead us to life or death? Mum and former head of support for brain tumor charity Rosemary Warmington said, The shoes are to remind those in power of the need to protect young children from climate change. We lost our daughter Frances to a brain tumour, which we could do nothing about. I don't want to lose my son to something that is totally preventable. The governments both at home and across the world need to act now and get rid of fossil fuel use and subsidies before it's too late to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Or they will have to take responsibility for the inevitable outcome, preventable children's deaths. In a new survey and paper on young people's voices of climate anxiety by the University of Bath, 72% of young Brits believe the future is frightening, while nearly 40% say they are hesitant to have children because of the climate crisis. Overall, 45% said their feelings about climate change negatively affected their daily lives and functioning. This is the biggest survey to date of 10,000 young people aged 16 to 25 in 10 countries which collated data on their thoughts and feelings about climate change and government response. Shoes will be donated to anti-poverty charities ShoeAid. Well, now we've reached the end of this recorded edition. Thank you to Moira, Jules and John for reading and recording and to Carol Hartle for leading that vital admin provision. We hope you've enjoyed listening and that you'll be back for more next time. So, best wishes from me, Evelyn, and from all the team. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. And starting with the obituaries, we have John Hubert Bakewell. Passed away peacefully on the 9th of October 2021, aged 92 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday the 28th of October at 1pm. Keeley Harris Thornilow passed away suddenly on 2nd of October, aged 29. Funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Friday the 29th of October 2021 at 10.45am. 
Pat Robinson, knee clerk, retired employee of Bookish Cash and Carry, passed away in hospital on the 8th of October 2021, aged 77 years. Funeral service at St Ebo's Church in Lee on Tuesday, the 2nd of November at 11.30am. Flowers welcome, or if preferred, donations may be given to a charity of your choice. Dorothy Mary Tarran, known as Dot, of Upton Snodsbury, on October the 13th, 2021, peacefully in St Richard's Hospice, aged 79 years. Crematorium Private, a service of thanksgiving, will take place at Upton Snodsbury Church on Tuesday, November the 2nd at 12 noon. Family flowers only. Diane Bradburn, passed away 28th of September 2021, aged 81 years. Funeral service to be held at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday the 21st at 11.30am. Family flowers only. William Nathaniel Brooks sadly passed away on October the 2nd, 2021, aged 87. The funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, November the 4th at 11.30am. Family flowers only, please. Roberta Ann Bobby Wood Nay Leach peacefully passed away in Norfolk on October the 6th, aged 82 years. Formerly of Woolhope Road, Worcester, all inquiries to Cania and Son Funeral Directors. Telephone zero one three two eight eight six two zero seven seven. Stephen Anthony Mezzone passed away suddenly on the third of October two thousand and twenty one, age fifty one. Funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Tuesday, the second of November two thousand and twenty one, at ten a.m. Please wear something red or Manchester United related. Family flowers only. And Winifred Jane Sharples of Fernhill Heath passed away peacefully in hospital on the 25th of September 2021, aged 94 years. Funeral service at St Michael and All Angels Church, Martin Hussingtree, on Tuesday the 26th of October, at 12.15pm, followed by committal at Worcester Crematorium. No flowers by request, please. Caroline Harvey-Jones, knee Harvey, sadly passed away at home on October the 1st, 2021, aged 62 years. The funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, October the 25th at 11.30am. Flowers welcome, but donations if desired to St Richard's Hospice. Heather Katrina Hill, on October the 8th, 2021, aged 72. Funeral service at St Denny's Church, Sevenstoke, on Tuesday, October the 26th at 2pm, followed by a burial in the churchyard. Family flowers only, please. Geoffrey Wallace Andrews, formerly of Bath Road, Worcester, died peacefully in his sleep on Sunday the 10th of October 2021, aged 81. No funeral details provided. 
John Baldwin passed away 30th of September 2021, aged 86. Funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, October the 28th at 3.15pm. Family flowers only, please. Inquiries to Cooperative Funeral Care.